Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and me, Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss telltales that help us invest, namely the energy markets, macroeconomics, and technology. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The host may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. Let's give it one more minute. For those on the phone, Mike and I talk for about 20 minutes every morning at 8.30. And I was bragging this morning, the weather's so nice here in New York. I was thinking that maybe I could, for one day at least, claim that we had better weather than they had in San Diego. But... I think you got Mike, it, Hunt. It right after we got off the phone, it started raining. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, one day, one day we at the Northeast <laughs> can can uh, claim credit. Let's see if we uh, can maintain that for a few more weeks, so that when. Well, yeah, we'll we'll try again tomorrow. Just before I get into oil and gas pricing, back a few months ago, we predicted that we were going to cover one company a. Uh, uh, Wednesday, one company a week. And the logic there was that we were kind of spooked by the way China was coming out. You'll remember we spent lots of time on NVIDIA and AMD and Intel and Micron and Qualcomm, and we spent time on ASML and applied materials and lamb research. And before that, if you go back far enough, we uh, in the spring, we covered, you know, the big tech stocks, the Apples, the Amazons, the Microsofts, the Salesforces, and uh, and uh, Metas, and, and so forth and so on. I think we decided one of our motivations for trying to do additional companies away from tech companies was we were spooked by China. This, I think, predated the U.S. putting in a regulation putting in regulations on the chip equipment companies and the chip companies having to get permission to ship the uh, more sophisticated equipment to China. And I think also, as the Communist Party Congress came up, it just seemed, you know, continued lockdowns, uh, kind of, uh, uh, and out of the, out of the Party Congress, a uh, kind of a not so interested in growth anymore, you know, want state control, don't want things like Alibaba and Tencent and whatnot, want to make sure the, the state has their thumb on everything. And so we figured we'll go wider, we'll look for companies. And I think now what's happened, I'll, I'll get into oil and gas pricing in a second, but what's happened is that we're, we're going to go through more companies than one a week. We were kind of sticky with, because Jason and Mike know chip companies, chip equipment companies. We were, I guess we were probably averaging two weeks. This last week, what we decided, or a week before this, we decided to cover the streaming companies. So we went through Netflix, Disney, Amazon, and I think Mike has been making available at 10 Qs, so people can follow those. This week, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Mike and Jason have done a lot on DISH, and we're going to talk about DISH in a second, but we'll cover ATT and Verizon T-Mobile. Before we 
and I think next week we'll do payments companies. We'll do Visa and MasterCard and PayPal. So we're going to get through more companies quicker than we would have anticipated a couple of months ago. Every every 30 minutes, I spend at least five minutes on oil and gas pricing, and I uh, the oil price is uh, is uh, it's got an awfully wide range out of it. There are macro situations. You know, Europeans are supposed to cut off Russian oil in the I think the first week of December. The Saudis are saying that, well, of course, they, they did the cut. And the paper this morning had an article which looked like it was planted, uh, saying that the Emirates, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, argued against the cut. Who knows whether that's true? Saudi Arabia is saying, and saying publicly, that they're asking for U.S. help because they think Iran is going to plan some kind of a drone attack or something on Saudi Arabia. So. There's a fair amount of geopolitics here. We've talked in prior Wednesdays, the U.S. Treasury has this price cap program. The idea was to try to, you know, try to use Russian oil so oil prices wouldn't fly up, but limit them to a certain cap. And uh, no one in the industry thought it'd work. And it looks like the Treasury, I, in my talking to friends, I referred to them as the Yellen caps has kind of at least delayed trying to institute that program with natural gas. So, you know, so what I mean by wide range, I would say any particular month between now and March or April, uh, you could have in a particular month, you could have $60 WTI. In a particular month, you could have $120 of uh, WTI. It wouldn't be sustainable, but you know, it, it would get there. Normally, you don't have that wide a range, but with all these geopolitical events, uh, one of the events, if, if China's rumored to be putting together some kind of a plan to not do these lockdowns, that would mean to the market, you know, stronger economy there and more use of oil. So. It's just impossible to say. If you own an oil stock, a stock that produces oil, if you own Pioneer or EOG or something, um, just stay the course. If you want to own more of it or you've got your eye on a particular oil company, I certainly wouldn't buy more than a half position now because, frankly, $60 is as likely as $120. And I promise you, if if oil starts to trade at $60, you know, these stocks will come down. On natural gas, very similar situation. People tend to think that LNG pricing has more impact on U.S. natural gas pricing. It does, and, and it would, except that we consume 90 bees a day in the U.S. And, you know, only about 13 uh, gets exported as LNG. LNG exports are going to go up over time, but it takes two, three years to build new LNG capacity. And uh, there's there's projects underway where, where money's being spent that will take LNG export capacity from 13 or so uh, up to up to you know close to 30. But it'll take six, seven years for all that to get built. And it's always possible along the way these projects will start to you know, be stretched or, or or dropped or what have you. So 
LNG pricing in Europe because of lack of Russian gas got really high, you know, like $100 and stuff like that. They're currently, if you have a ship with LNG on it and you want to put the ship in a berth and empty out the LNG, probably only get $14 today for it. If you hang on to that ship for four, five, six weeks, you'll get $30 for it. So you can imagine what's happened. The, the daily uh, uh, charter rate for LNG ships has gone way up because you'd rather steam it around and get $30 in six weeks. What's happened is every piece of storage where you store LNG or you gasify the gas and store that is all used. So what does that mean? I, I don't think it means a whole heck of a lot. The concern here in the US is that the near month has come from $8 down to around five and a half dollars. And there definitely is an extra couple of Bs of production. Plus this uh, Freeport plant went down with a significant fire. They're, they're bringing it back up, but that was two Bs of demand. So that'll come back and the extra two Bs of production seems about half from the Haynesville and about half associated gas from the Permian. So Marcellus, which is probably the cheapest gas to bring on, is pretty flat. Problem with the Marcellus in Pennsylvania, and West Virginia, and Ohio, is there's not enough pipeline capacity out. And under the Biden administration, very hard to permit new gas pipelines. So that gas and, and the Marcellus is kind of bottled up. If you own a gas stock, don't sell it. Once again, like oil stocks, if you've got one that you want to add a position to, wait. If you decide I really want to own EQT or you really want to own Antero Resources or I really want to own Chesapeake, uh, buy half, you know, buy half position or a third position or something because the, the out years have held up pretty well at 450 or so, you know, for 23, 24. But if the near year, the near month, it's down like to four, you'd expect producers to start selling uh, 23 and 24 deliveries. And, and so that 450 could go down. I, I think it could go down by buck or so if you got an imbalance of sellers versus buyers in, in, those, uh, in those years. So best to, be, best to be a bit cautious in each place. In terms of macro, I think that the optimistic view for the for the stock market and the economy is uh, deadlock in Washington. In other words, if you have the Republicans in control of the House and you have just kind of a jump ball in the Senate and you have some uncertainty about whether Biden is going to try to run for a second term, whether Trump is going to try to run, which he probably will, can someone beat him in the primaries? Maybe. So to the extent that you had kind of deadlock in Washington, uh, I think it'd be pretty good for the capital markets. The concern here is, and we 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 gave this title last week, and don't don't if you read it, don't don't get totally spooked. But it's called The Lords of Easy Money by Christopher Leonard. Christopher Leonard, Lords of Easy Money. It was given out at the Jim Grant conference. It's all about how quantitative easing was entirely misused. The central bank is there it, when there's a problem like there was in the fall of 08, there was a problem with COVID to, to 
basically take collateral in and issue money and, and, and run the balance sheet up. It's not designed to be used uh, when, when you're not in a situation like that. And so we've gotten our central bank balance sheet up to nine trillion, we have to bring it down. The right thing to do is to have it in runoff, which is 90 billion a month. And that will that will continue unless there's a crack. Now, you know, Brazil came through its election okay. The Asian economy, East Asian economies seem okay. Uh, Japan's kind of dealing with their own problems, but Japan can deal. The stuff in the UK, that was more pension funds levering themselves to try to get a better interest rate. That seems to be kind of a localized problem. Obviously, if, you know, the European Union could have trouble, you know, keeping Italy, you know, from getting the dip, the differential in Italian bonds versus general bonds gets too high, but presumably the European community can, can handle that. So there don't seem to be any obvious cracks. So it would be really good if the Fed could just bring that balance sheet down by a trillion a year without causing some disruption. Uh, on the other hand, people who, if, if, if you're thinking you want to plan your life or plan your investments based on 2% inflation, just remember, because of, of the spending $7 trillion more than revenues, probably overdoing it by at least half, federal debt is now $31 trillion. entry on the $31 trillion is $310 billion. That's one third of all discretionary spending by our, by our government. You know, if you take out Social Security and Medicare and defense and whatnot, you come down to just about a trillion dollars. You know, that's a third of that is 1% on that debt. So one of the things sovereign countries do with reserve currencies is they inflate their way out of it. Well, you know, does do, do the people in appointed offices, Federal Reserve or elected offices, do they really want to take the te- steps that would be necessary to handle that debt with a 2% inflation? I don't know. I'm a bit of a skeptic myself. I think a better forecast for inflation over the next 10 years is probably more like 4% or 5%, but we'll see how that comes. Now, Mike and I want Jason to talk more this time. We feel like we're monopolized, especially me, monopolizing our uh, 30 minutes, and we've got about 14 minutes left. So. The project is looking at how we deal with the internet and uh, whether uh, we're you know, on a PC or a bigger piece of equipment or an iPhone or whatnot, we use the broadband providers a lot. And a lot of it is with AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile. And uh, I've spread these companies and looked at them and I'm, I'm not sure I see kind of an investment case for any of them. But let's turn it over to Jason because I think Jason's going to possibly prefer T-Mobile. And there's a company that I just haven't considered here called Dish that I know Jason and, and Mike have spent a fair amount of time on. So I think what we ought to do, we ought to, Mike and I ought to turn the next five or 10 minutes over to Jason so he can give us a, uh, his read on how to think about these companies as potential investments or how to look at these companies and their impact on other investments we might have, like, you know, NVIDIA and AMD making chips for uh, data centers, which uh, these people all need to have. So over to you, Jason. All right. I guess I will set the stage by kind of giving you a breakdown of, of subscribers 
on the big three mobile carriers. So Verizon has 140 million subscribers. AT&T has about 100 million. And T-Mobile has actually become the second largest at 110 million. That largely is due to uh, a merger with Sprint. So where Dish comes in is part of the agreement with the Department of Justice to allow that merger is they would kind of enable a fourth carrier to come back into the U.S. market. Um, and that carrier is, is they would hope, is Dish Network. They allowed Dish Network to buy a lot of spectrum in the 5G range to launch the, their next network. And then they divested Boost Mobile to Dish so that and they provided an MVO, MVNO agreement so they could operate the fourth carrier. Um, as far as who's taking market share out of the big three that are operating now, as Charlie Ergen said, T-Mobile's running away with the market. They're adding... 1.7 million subscribers last quarter. AT&T is adding a roughly a million and Verizon is basically treading water. I guess another sign of T-Mobile really uh, dominating the market right now is despite not raising prices, they're increasing the average revenue they receive per subscriber. You can see that as they're adding lines, they're doing promotions, you're adding more service, whereas people are... In, in Verizon's case, they were more aggressive with price hikes and, and they're leave, leaving the service. Anything you'd add, Mike? No, I mean, I, I think that's a good overview. And I, it, it's an interesting market because there's really only these three major players. This is consolidated over time. And many of them have, well, AT&T in particular and Dish in a way have their history in the cable or in the case of DISH, direct satellite television communications. So there's some similarities between the mobile market and the, and, and the cable market, but they're not all the same. The most important thing to kind of be aware of, though, is with a relatively small number of players, you end up with this situation where there are opportunities for the different players to work together. And we we kind of think that that's how things are going to shape up as we evolve into 5G. And Jason, if you want to cover high level on Open RAN and where that stuff's going, I think that's that's kind of the potential disruptor to this whole market, or at least kind of the enabler of the next layer of technology that we'll see. Sure. So, so RAN stands for Radio Access Network. So it's it's literally the the network that your cell phone talks over over a radio signal, and the open comes in is is it's an open standard that Dish and the industry is starting to move towards, and, and Dish is the first one to adopt it in the United States. The, the idea behind having an open standard is all of the all of the equipment providers behind the scenes, whether it's Qualcomm or Nokia or Ericsson, um, all the guys that are making the the equipment to send and receive radio signals will manufacture it to it to that standard. Um, and you can kind of buy them off the shelf. Whereas traditionally you're, if you're Verizon, you're, you have a custom spec, you're buying customized equipment just for your network. Um, and it's, it's a lot of the reason why, why things don't interoperate. Um, and it, and it raises the cost cost for the industry. Um, so kind of, Another aspect to Open RAN is the idea of cloud computing um, and, and adding in the backbone to your network being one of the hyperscalers. 
Um, in Dish Network's case, they've chosen Amazon, AWS. So instead of a Verizon or an AT&T operating their own server infrastructure and backbone, Dishes is just going to be virtual machines living in uh, Amazon's cloud. So they're, they're really kind of CapEx light in building that, that network out, right? They're, they're relying on Amazon to provide a lot of the infrastructure. And we actually went and, and saw one of Dish Network's proposed cell tower sites and the equipment necessary to transmit the signals is roughly the size of a refrigerator cabinet um, versus Verizon's next door was like a shed, a small building. So a lot of that does get offloaded to, to Amazon. Yeah, and for, for clarity, none of this is proven yet. But the, no. conceptually, the belief is that Dish Network will be able to launch a network, a nationwide network, for an order of magnitude less in CapEx than what the traditional operators are doing. So 10 right. billion versus 100, basically. Right, right. Uh, Dish, Dish says they can do it for 10 billion. Verizon and AT&T, I believe, spend 30 billion a year to, to maintain their network. Something like that. Or maybe it's, they're spending that now because they're Well, they also have the fixed line as well. They're doing fiber and... So disintermingling these businesses is a little bit challenging because there is so many different moving parts. But but then the question flows through and you going to the analyst day and having all, everybody's got the same questions. Well, if you're running all this in the cloud, then does that mean your OPEX is going to be higher on a per user basis? And the answer is Dish seems to think that it'll still be lower, um, but nobody really has good data as to how that'll pencil out. So in some ways, the network could potentially flex up and down more effectively. But remembering that there's only so much throughput in a given radio signal, so on a single tower, so you're somewhat constrained by the tower, but your, your virtualized back end can flex up and down with capacity requirements. And that's where this kind of steps into how can some of these existing telcos work together because some of them have more capacity on other networks. And the way they do it is through what's called an MVNO agreement, Mobile Virtual Network Operator. Now, traditionally, that's been like Boost Mobile, which is the brand that Dish got from Sprint in the Sprint T-Mobile merger agreement, where Boost doesn't own any infrastructure and they operate as a mobile virtual operator traditionally on the T-Mobile backbone, and they've recently added an arrangement where they can float onto the AT&T backbone as well. So uh, what we're, we're watching it because we think it could be really disruptive. It also could just be a meh. <laughs> um, it, it could just kind of, they could just struggle along as the fourth carrier, kind of like Sprint did for a long time. But... We think the technology is really interesting. We think that Open RAN has some potential to be significantly better. And with virtualizing these networks, we think the the user experience, and whether that's a business or, or an individual, for mobile data connectivity is going to likely improve significantly. Well, the other the other thing in terms of disruption, with five minutes left, the a loyal Comcast stockholder and, and our family, Brian, R and John are charter stockholders. Uh, 
one of the things that's disruptive is I think it's especially T-Mobile doing uh, fixed base wireless. They offer at a lower cost and and quality of service apparently is okay or it's, I guess varies uh, based on localities. But uh, I, I think for the people who are devotees of Charter, Comcast, or the, the cable companies who are, who are really not we think of cable companies as, you know, collecting money for ESPN and bundling this stuff. They really don't do much of that anymore. That's a declining business. What they do do is uh, deliver internet primarily to the home. Interestingly enough, too, the, those two cable companies, by giving up Spectrum, have deals, I forget, I think it's with Verizon, so that they're they're offering their customers wireless service, uh, you know, cell phone service, where you know, it's within their Wi-Fi, uh, they handle it, but then if it goes to Verizon, then it goes over to them. So, 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 I mean, in that particular area, you know, there's definitely some disruption going on now, and apparently it's commercial for T-Mobile and, and, and also commercial for Charter and Comcast to offer, uh, offer uh, cell phone service. Curious how the, how, the, how the two of you think that trend is going. Yeah, it, it's it's extremely cost effective for a charter to offer a, a mobile plan because most of your most of your use is in your home or your office, and in that case, the data goes over your Wi-Fi, it goes over your your wired network connection through their their cable broadband, um, which is much cheaper to um, deliver data over. Um, and often higher speeds until until five G came along. Fixed wireless, though, yeah, that's another that's another story, and and it depends on what frequency of five G you're operating on. T-Mobile runs on what's kind of known as mid band, meaning it has a good balance of range and capacity. As a result, when they rolled out their five G network, they had a bunch of excess capacity. And it was fast. So they started offering this fixed wireless access where you just plug in a wireless access point with a Wi-Fi router and you can access your internet that way. And a little differentiator there with Verizon is they they focused on a millimeter wave, which is a, a higher frequency, and a higher frequency allows you to transmit more data. So their, their fixed wireless access points have extremely high throughput and but but much more sm- smaller range so so that the the opportunity for that cell site to get saturated with too many connections is lower so they can they can probably offer fixed wireless around their high frequency cell sites more successfully but you're you're hyper localized in that case yeah and that's what we're seeing we're seeing T-Mobile is moving away from densely populate, populated areas for their fixed wireless offering and Verizon is being more aggressive in densely populated areas with their fixed wireless. Again, different strategies, different bandwidths. And one thing to kind of keep keep in mind that I learned at KVH, we were doing uh, geosynchronous satellite data communications for boats, is when the service is really good, you're not usually making any money. When the service gets congested, uh, that's generally when you're making the most money. So, so all of these operators, in, in the case of a mobile operator, optimizing the balance between congestion 
and speed is important. And building the technologies and able to, to manage that effectively is important. And again, that kind of ties back to the MVNO world and the possibilities for these guys to share networks, if you will, uh, in order to optimize their cost structures. So, yeah, this, it's a complicated uh, business, but we think there's some interesting things happening here. Yeah. We'll, we've run out of time. We will spend some time next week finishing up trying to consolidate the information we've picked up or are picking up. But, but we will move on to payments companies. So if you're collecting 10 Qs uh, to kind of get more familiar with these companies, first of all, with the 10 Qs I recommend, I've learned, get the uh, press release on the earnings because uh, how much information is included in the 10 Q varies all over. So if you get the press release on the earnings plus the 10 Q, you'll, you'll, be, you'll, you'll basically have it all. Uh, the investor slides, don't help me a bunch. If, if people like to look at the investor slides, that's good. But if you have the press release and the 10Q, you'll be in good shape. And the three will will finish up some and and catch up some on on uh, some of the companies we've covered, the software and the chip companies. But we'll focus next week on Visa, Mastercard, and PayPal. And uh, when Jason. Jason and Mike, uh, the uh, the technical people on the phone, as compared to me, will uh, also uh, talk. If we're talking payments, we'll we'll also talk blockchain. I have to say that discussion may last uh, two Wednesdays rather than one. And in the meantime, everyone stay healthy and be well. And we'll talk next week. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.